When Jonathan Dekelhen goes to Washington these days, and he goes to Washington a lot, he brings photos. Mostly they're pictures of his 35-year-old son, Sagi. He wishes he could bring more. A lot of the photos that we had for Sagi uh, and for all my other kids and grandkids were burned on October 7th. It was not just a murderous rampage and hostage-taking. It was full-scale looting and destruction. Jonathan and his son are American citizens, but they lived on an Israeli kibbutz, Nero's. When Hamas fighters invaded, Nero's was one of the first places they went. Sagi has been missing ever since. I'd love to share uh, all kinds of photos, him as a little boy, as a baseball player. He was one of the few Israelis who actually knows how to play baseball by virtue of my addiction to the sport. And he bought into it, thank goodness, when he was a boy, so I'd have a playmate. That's dedication. Baseball game takes some time. It sure does. Um, And he caught the bug. This is the Sagi Jonathan wants lawmakers to know. The Sagi who is so much more than a photo on a missing poster. Not just a baseball player. He played on Israel's junior national team as a kid. He's also a tinkerer. He fixed broken down farm equipment by hand. And Sagi's a dad to two little girls, with a third on the way. On October 7th, he locked his wife Avital and his kids in a safe room, and he tried to defend his farm. When the day was done, he'd gone missing. The only reason his father knows Sagi was taken is because other hostages, people who've been released, have seen him. But that was weeks ago. So now, Jonathan's going door-to-door with politicians in Israel, in the U.S., to plead his son's case, urge them to send in the Red Cross to make sure Sagi's okay, urge them to bring Sagi home. After showing them pictures, Jonathan likes to leave mementos behind, one of those missing posters of his son, and a pair of these dog tags the hostage families have been handing out. Which I think is, is, is a powerful symbol uh, of, of humanity, really, more than anything else. The dog tags say, bring them home, right? Uh, in English, yes, they say, bring them home. And then in Hebrew, um, it, there's something else, Halev Sheli Ba'aza, which in translation means, my heart is in Gaza. months in, do you feel more or less optimistic about your son's fate? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer. For nearly two months, we didn't know if he was alive. Um, We know that he was taken captive after a battle on the kibbutz in general and in and around his house specifically. We didn't know if he he was alive. So the mere fact that as of, let's say, two and a half, three weeks ago, we know that he was alive, that is an enormous, enormous source of of, of strength for us and hope. Um, But as I say, with the passage of time, that's certainly nothing is for certain. Today on the show, one family's hostage story. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
Jonathan, you're an American citizen. Can you tell me the story of how you ended up moving to Kibbutz Neros? I grew up in in semi-rural Connecticut, small town. I grew up in a community uh, that mostly was not Jewish, but it had a strange characteristic that a fairly large number of Holocaust survivors and refugees from Nazi Germany settled there both during and after the Second World War. And my parents were among them. My mother was a a little girl when her family was miraculously able to escape from Nazi Germany in 1940. And my dad was a hardcore Holocaust survivor, having survived six years in Nazi uh, labor camps and concentration camps. So all of us kids of these Holocaust survivors grew up with a very strong Jewish identity. In my case, it manifests in this idea of um, eventually going to Israel and and helping build what um, uh, was a Jewish state and graduated high school and and went on my way. Hmm. What did Kibbutz Nero's offer to you? Like, what what did you love about it? What did your son love about it? Because he must have loved it because he stayed. He very much loved it. Um, it's a way of life. A kibbutz, of course, for those listeners who, who who don't know, it's a small cooperative farm. Uh, in our case, it's a community of about 440 people, multi-generational, um, in which it, it, it's a shared fate and a shared life. You pool your resources. Uh, yes. And, and certainly in 1982, when I wound up there, um, it was very much that. It was a, a classic conventional kibbutz where you shared your resources. Life, you know, that was was very thin in the creature comforts, but that that absolutely spoke to me because it was just this this combined effort to make the desert bloom and to be there for one another in in a very positive way, in a multi generational way. Did you grow things? Oh, most definitely. Yeah, I, I've held a series of jobs, and after my mandatory army service. I became a, a kind of uh, what I would hope to be an, an expert in irrigation and after that into agricultural machinery. And Sagi was one of my four kids. He really grew up in the agricultural machine shop and sort of being my tag along in the fields, um, supervising and, and, and servicing agricultural machinery. Our kibbutz is really cutting edge in terms of or was until October 7th a very cutting-edge, high-tech agricultural enterprise. In his professional life, he has really manifest that love of of building things. Um, His pet entrepreneurial project with his wife is to take old buses and refurbish them into usable objects. And the morning of October 7th, he was actually... Doing that work, it was a Saturday morning, also a holiday morning, and was his practice. He kissed his wife and girls good morning and went off to the kibbutz machine shop, which is about 200, 250 yards from his home. And his intent was to continue working. He had two of those buses he was working on simultaneously to convert into classrooms when he first spotted the a group of heavily armed terrorists uh, that had penetrated into the kibbutz. Yeah, I know that you were not there on the kibbutz on October 7th, but that Sugi was one of the first people to send out a message to the group chat saying there are gunmen here. Yes. As a resident, like, did you get that message from your own son? Is it how you learned what was going on? Well, I was in Baltimore on my way to an academic conference that day. We were woken up, myself and my wife, we were woken up uh, early in the morning at about 6 a.m., 
woken by a friend in, in Boston who had been seeing on the news that something really bad was happening in the region of near Oz. And she asked us if we knew what was going on. Of course, I had no idea what she was talking about. But um, very quickly, uh, once I turned on my phone, I did see what was going on. We have in the kibbutz a kind of group chats through WhatsApp. And there were multiple chats going on. So you had this like live documentation. Yes. Yes. How awful to read through it. Uh, The worst moment of my life up to that moment. Yes. Um, I immediately immediately called first my daughter, uh, who also lives on the kibbutz, one of my kids. Uh, I have a son and a daughter who live on the kibbutz with her young family. They were able to pick up very, had a very brief conversation with her husband, actually. Uh, They were all sheltering in their attached bomb shelters. Um, And he basically gave me the quick rundown that the kibbutz is under assault. And there were literally terrorists outside their door. When did you realize what had happened with Sagi? Well, I asked my son-in-law, Yossi, uh, if he knew anything about Sagi. And he said that they had lost contact with him at around 9.30 that morning, so roughly two and a half hours. Your heart must have stopped. Uh, My world stopped at that moment. Um, We also didn't really know what was happening with his wife, with Sagi's wife, Avital, and the two little girls. So we didn't know if they were alive until much later that afternoon. When the dust settled after the attack... Jonathan was able to piece together just how devastating it had all been for the kibbutz and for his family. His ex-wife, the mom of his kids, had been injured and kidnapped, but she managed to escape right before being taken into Gaza. His daughter and her family survived. Jonathan says Sagi disappeared while fighting off Hamas militants. Of the 400 residents of Nero's, around 20 were killed, and an estimated 80 were taken as hostages. The reason they were able to take so many, we've now sort of in the um, forensic thinking about all of this, uh, the reason they were able to take so many of us uh, was because uh, the IDF never came. Mm. Because hostages from Nero's made up such a large proportion of those who were taken on October 7th, they also made up a significant proportion of those who were released in November during the temporary ceasefire. And I know that you weren't expecting your son to be among those released because he's a man of fighting age who had indeed fought with Hamas. But can you tell me about that moment when you learned that people from your community would be returning? You must know these people quite well. Let me frame it this way. First, I was thrilled. I was thrilled. These were my friends Some of them had been my co-workers over the years. Young women who I had seen grow up. They're the age of my kids. Little ones who were dear friends of my grandkids on the kibbutz. So I couldn't have been happier. Couldn't have been happier at that moment. Uh, And recognizing that the alternative was much worse. Um, The second worst moment of my life so far was eulogizing a few days after October 7th. Uh, eulogizing at the funeral uh, a family of six, uh, the Simantov Kedem family. The entire family? Grandmother, 
her son, his wife, and their three little children. Um, they were all dear friends, dear, dear friends. Um, they were my kids' friends. They were my grandchildren's friends. The father was shot outside of his home. The mother was shot through the door. Um, they couldn't open the door. Then they set the house on fire, the terrorists. And that's how the children died? The three little kids most definitely died of asphyxiation. And it was, I was asked to eulogize them because of my closeness with all the family. And Carol, uh, the grandmother, has been my friend since 1981. Uh, uh, an American citizen, by the way, from, from Philly. How did you begin to do that? I couldn't write a word. You know, I tried um, the night before. And I couldn't write a word. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a blur, to be honest with you. It sounds like what you're saying is that when you got the news that many hostages from your kibbutz would be released, your gratitude was partially about, I don't have to do another service like that for these people. That's right. And I'm so grateful. I think you're expressing exactly, because there were entire families who were taken um, taken and or murdered. There could have been more, fun and there still may be more funerals like this. Uh, we've already gotten death notices from about people that we believed were hostages. But over the course of the last two weeks, we've gotten notification from Hamas that they're dead. And you must, of course, think of your son, too. Every day, every minute. Um, I mean, again, I do know as of about two and a half weeks ago that he is alive. Um, but every moment that passes, who knows? They are not receiving medical care. Uh, there are bombs falling around them. So there is a real um, feeling of, of distress uh, amongst any hostage family, any and all. We'll be back after the break. Around the same time Jonathan was in D.C., meeting with U.S. officials to push for the release of his son, a very different meeting was taking place in Israel. A group of hostage families and released hostages themselves were meeting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his war cabinet to discuss bringing more hostages home. But leaked audio from this meeting shows it was tense, with family members shouting at the Prime Minister. As both it. One family member described the meeting to the press, saying, It was a model of how the country of Israel is run. We were invited for 3 o'clock. They showed up at 3.45. They got us mad, and we fought amongst ourselves. Look, these are desperate times uh, for hostage families. I think magnified by the fact that we're getting now direct testimony, you know, eyewitness testimony from the hostages who have returned about how horrific the conditions are. As far as our government is concerned, I mean, keep in mind, this is a known fact. That meeting only happened, meaning the war cabinet led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, that meeting only happened because of a public shaming the day before by a group of hostage families in a very well-televised 
press conference uh, demanding a meeting. And we all are perfectly aware that in the first few days of the IDF assault, Prime Minister Netanyahu and others did not say much of anything about the fate of the hostages. He and others were forced to do so by the public outcry, led by the hostage families, of course. Hundreds of people have gathered in central Tel Aviv for the biggest protest so far in support of the hostages and their families. And they're calling on the Israeli authorities to get their loved ones home from Gaza as soon as possible. They're calling on them to make it their top priority. Now, when we've met with the entire cabinet, what we've heard is that taking down Hamas and bringing the hostages are as important, are equally important. This is incredibly disappointing because people are dying. We know that for sure. And so there's not a lot of good news coming out of Israel in terms of the solidarity between the hostage families and our leadership. Hamas has detained some hostages in previous conflicts for years. That's right. Are you preparing for that in some way? Like, how do you even prepare for that? Uh, I don't I don't think about that. Uh, that's not what I intend to happen. And I think all of the hostage families, of course, were painfully aware of that history. And uh, we're doing everything we can to make sure that that does not happen. Yeah. You know, I wanted your perspective on something because I've had a number of guests on my show who've said they don't believe the destruction of Hamas is possible. They think the idea of Hamas, the idea of this struggle, whether it's, you know, like the military, actual actual militarized group or the idea, it's so embedded at this point that its elimination just isn't going to happen. And I know you've said that is that is what you need to happen here. So when you hear someone say this goal is not possible, what do you think? Um, look, ideologies and fanaticism and hatreds are extremely difficult to eradicate. It's a long-term process, mostly through education which isn't instantaneous. I have no illusions that religious fundamentalism of all kinds, of all kinds, not just Muslim, is very difficult to defeat or very difficult to eradicate. That is simply true, and and I would not argue uh, against that. But there's a different truth here, which is we've reached an inflection point in which that can no longer be tolerated, because this is the price. This is the price, this kind of savagery uh, that was perpetrated on October 7th. What I would hope could happen here, and they must not allow Hamas, this kind of governing authority that planned, funded, and executed this massacre and this mass hostage-shaking, they cannot allow for the good of the world to be victorious. There have been some hostage families who have been very explicit that 
they don't want their relatives' circumstances to be used as a justification for mass death in Gaza. How do you think about that, about your son's safety, about the calls to not to not eliminate so many thousands of people at this moment? Yeah. Well, I wish none of this were happening and none of it were necessary. And I agree with those voices coming from the hostage families, not in his name, not in Sagi's name. Do not do this. Don't pretend that, you know, this is happening solely because of the release of the hostages. Um, the war aims and the execution of the war, um, you know, have their own motives and their own justifications in the eyes of our own leadership, Israeli leadership. Israel or Israel's leadership has a moral and political responsibility to get these hostages home that is completely separate from the conduct of this war. Clearly, there's been a lot of loss of, of, of Palestinian lives over the course of the last two months. I don't think you'll find a hostage family that rejoices in that. Absolutely not. And, and I absolutely agree with them. Don't be doing this in the name of my son. You have no right uh, to do this. Um, what needs to be done to Hamas, you know, needs to be done, but, but not in his name. He would never agree to that either. I worry. I worry for you, though. I worry because your son's still in Gaza, as far as we know. I think some would worry that his life is on the line as bombs fall, and it's a terrible potential price. And I know you must think about that every day. I think about it all the time. And hence, I and many other um, hostage families are demanding from our government, from the Israeli government, um, to do everything now, whatever their other war goals might be, to do everything now to get the hostages home. And logic would dictate that the surest way to get them home is through a negotiated, some kind of negotiated process now. Look, my, my end game is... And I'm sure it's similar to, to all other hostage families, is for Sagi to walk down, and I, I, I dearly hope he can walk on his two feet, uh, to walk down some hallway or into some room, and his two little girls will leap into his arms, and he will, well, I don't know if it'll be before or after Avital gives birth, because it's any minute now, um, and he will meet his infant daughter, and I'm willing to do anything and demand everything uh, for that to happen for Sagi and the other 130 some odd hostages. It sounds like you picture exactly what it'll be like. Uh, I think everyone has that, all of the hostage families and, and their loved ones have a picture in their mind of, of what they're working towards because the alternative is horrendous, unspeakable. Yeah. You just did it there, but I, I do want to make sure that however we end this interview, we return to your son and his humanity and all of his, all of the joy he brings you. I was noticing that most articles about Sagi are accompanied by the same image 
Yeah. He's very handsome. He's like bathed in sunlight. He's got this smile. It's just like lighting him up from inside. Can you tell me about this image and how it became the one you shared? It is a very, very characteristic photo of Sagi. And the light shines out of him. And he's, you know, he's he's hard-nosed, but he is probably the most optimistic person, or certainly among the most optimistic people I've ever met. He really does believe that if you do, and quite literally with your hands, do the right things, and life will improve for people, people who you know and people who you don't know. I mean, in a way, he's, you know, kind of the living definition of altruism, you know, doing stuff for people that you don't even know. He lights up a room. He lights up every space. I don't know of a single person who has not met him and come away feeling that the world's a better place because people like Sagir in it. Jonathan, I'm really grateful for you taking so much time and telling your story in such depth. Thanks for doing it. I appreciate your willingness. Jonathan Dekelhen is a professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the father of Sigi Dekelhen. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.